This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hi. Hi, Dr. Carr. Good everything, Professor Hunter. How are you this beautiful second week of January? I was just um, telling you, yeah, I'm, I, um, I'm well. I, I got up, walked. It was snowing. It started snowing this morning a little bit, which was Jersey. actually welcome because it was like 60 degrees yesterday in Jersey, which I'm like, nah. Yeah, this, this, come on, son. I mean, get you in. <laughs> come on, son. Come on, son. No question. <laughs> What's yeah, going man. on? All prayers to the fam in Alabama, Central Alabama. How many tornadoes, yo? Yeah. Uh, I mean, California too, floods and I mean, it's, it's uh, mother nature as the ozone heals itself. One must ask, what does healing look like? Healing can sometimes be very violent, right? As your body heals, fever comes, you know, you got, you're going to have pain sometimes to let you know that things are, are waking up. And uh, I think the earth as the ozone layer is healing, which we've read is finally coming together. I think that those uh, few months of COVID uh, gave it a chance to, get to some homeostasis and uh but as a result i think there's gonna be a whole lot more um what we call you know pain what do you call it pain growing pains growing pains yeah let's see if we're the invasive species (laughs) the earth maybe finally we finally got a chance to maybe purge ourselves of or or call perhaps we better take the hint uh i want to publicly thank you uh i can't thank you enough i thank you privately all the time um Daniel Black, Dr. Daniel Black, and I, I want to just public service announcements for the, for those of you watching this in YouTube and wh- whatever your situation is and why you can't come to Nubia. There's no judgment. Nubia was created because there was one episode in particular where we were live in YouTube and I realized that, ooh, um, the troll, I mean, it was a troll bot farmer. So I don't, I don't know what it was. Send it upon us that day. We were talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. And I was like, oh, this won't happen again. Um, we need safe places to build, but more importantly, um, last week I lost eight years of a log from my show. Really? Eight years of guests and shows and video that was in uh, stored on a Google um, in a Google situation. And I was like, at any point in time, things can just disappear. We've talked about this off mic. So to have a place where we can store our memories, as I'm reading Daniel Black, the memories. The, the destruction of our memories. Yes, the coming. Let me let me zone in on that, please, because everyone, yeah. In fact, he and uh, Dr. Black who was back from Kenya. He was in the Great Rift Valley. Um, just texted me just as we went live, and he said um, he he wanted to know whether or not you were going to come in and talk with him on Monday night. I said, she's always there. He said, oh, I really, I've been hearing some good things. People have been telling me she's been talking about the coming. I said, Black, come on, bro. So he's excited. He texted me this morning. I mean, I would never intrude. I was going to invite him on the radio show, you know, separately because, oh, I'm you know, oh, yeah. So I'm invited on Monday. I'll show up. I'll show up. And I'm grateful. But, you know, to create a space of community where you know everybody's intention you know, we all come at different places, different stages of our lives, different um, consciousness. Uh, but everyone in Nubia, they they are of a singular mind in, in this way. You know, they are about building something that doesn't exist and participating in the building of something. And, if, you know, and, and not everyone's there, you know, and there's no shame. You know, you, you come to a place when you're ready for it. So I'm just saying Nubia's home. It'll be there when you're ready. 
you know, those of you who are not quite ready to be there for whatever reason, but we needed a place where we could collect and gather our memories and ourselves and our, and our, and this knowledge that you give unfettered, unbothered, unmolested by um, social structures that may want to stop it. Because at every turn we've seen in history, when the momentum starts, that's where, you know, the opposition comes. So we, you know, we have it on hard drive. We have it in several different places, all of these lessons so that, you know, hundred years from now, somebody can, whatever the technology will be. And I think it's going to go backwards <laughs> and we, we will be having books as well because we should have all of this uh, knowledge in all forms. If one thing no presses have taught us is when you write stuff down, uh, even if it's myth, like the myth of Christopher Columbus, uh, immortalized by Washington Irving in a series of novels, gave, gave us uh, gave us false history for how many years? But you know, we're gonna tell the truth. So that's Teach. it. That's why you have a paper. Good morning. That's right. Well, can, can we uh, can we Terry? Because this is uh, you know, you raised a series of questions earlier in the week, and I thought about it when you said we're gonna go backward because. Uh, on the op-ed page of this morning's Financial Times, they've got an article that it is time for to consider the opportunities and risks of a new form of computing. It's talking about the dawning of the quantum age. And I'm laughing because there's always been class stratifications in this system we live in now, but it's going to get more extreme. And everybody is, not, let me not say everybody, so many people during COVID did what we started doing thanks to you. And you said, can, let me, can I press record? And then next thing you know, here we are. And, and in the wake of people being driven back to feed the economy in the old ways that have become familiar, at the top of the class structure, those people haven't gone back, not in the way that the people who never stopped working in person did. And somewhere in between are all these other institutions. We started school in um, this week at Howard. And, you know, a lot of us are back full-time in person. It's my first time in Ernest Jest Auditorium since March 2020 in person. You know, I haven't stopped having class. And it's there are not as many people, and I mean faculty. And what I'm realizing is a lot of people are still virtual. And or, or in my in the case of Hunter College, retired. They left. That's the other thing. Which, which I'm considering, by the way, um, because... <laughs> I can't, I can't make a, you know, I can't come to a logical conclusion about why I need to sit in a classroom when the teaching is everywhere and to be able to reach as opposed to like class, cause it's a lab class of writers, 16, two classes, 32 at the most versus 30,000 or 300,000 or Three million. It's the same lesson, same lesson, and I get the same feeling um, three hours a day on on Sirius XM that I do in the classroom. So absolutely. Well, that's why I wanted to Terry with because you know I, I came across the short video I recorded just the, the day they closed the campus in March, the second week of March, and I was in the parking lot and I looked around. Everything was dark, and I said, you know, we all get ready to go online. But we not gonna let y'all down. This is we, I think we we may be getting ready to jailbreak the university, the black university. Here we are almost three years later, and it is in place, thanks to you. I mean, you had to build that. Now we're all here and we're all building together, but somebody had to have the skill set, the gift, the vision, 
and the stamina because it's really what we're talking about is a failure of will where you had that vision and you put it in place and so i just want to share with you that just this first week of class uh just a couple of stories that are about 15 seconds a piece the first one dr Beatty came into class and this young brother said my father is your student in nubia and he told me to sign up for the in-person class and in my class a brother came in and said my mother doesn't miss karen hunter on the radio she's in nubia and i just want you to know that we are all here what we're seeing little by little and soon i expect a flood of this is coming and not just at howard all over is that because everybody is with us in narrative and newbies there because they want to be when Nduku held up the eloquence of the scribes and we were talking about that on monday night 1300 people there and then tuesday morning i came to campus now i've got a class uh, they, they they reduced the numbers uh, in my classes which was not as a favor to me um i think some politics get caught up in it but i'm i'm so fine with it because now they don't have enough classes now they're asking me to admit students into my classes i'm just chuckling because even when i had 250 200 now i got about 120 130 in this class one particular class was teach several I said, but i just know but i just left a global conversation that averages well over a thousand people 1300 in particular on monday night and then this monday we got black the black university has been jailbroken the university has been jailbroken and, and so i want to thank you for no, that I, and many other things okay. you're welcome i re i receive it but at the same time i push back as i'm reading daniel black's the coming mm -hmm. i said you you know um sometimes i feel like sisyphus but then I'm like, no, the African version of that will get the rock over the hill. So I'm the African version of the person pushing that rock that will not quit pushing the rock until it gets up over the hill. But the, I'm also the African person that has thousands, maybe millions of people behind me pushing me to push yeah. the rock and on side of the rock with me pushing the rock, you among them. So, you know, in, in the Greek version, Sisyphus is by himself pushing a rock up a hill and it keeps rolling back down on him. In the African version... We never do it alone. And that's something that, um, whether it's the ancestors, whether it's Jimmy Yah, whether it's Oshun, whether it is God, whether it is Allah, all the same, by the way, y'all, I'm just saying something right now. Um, whether it is my grandmother, you know, whether it's your mother, you know, we are, we are not in this space alone, which is what every day I'm reminded of. So while, yes, um, I, you know, like that warrior in the hold of the ship who couldn't speak the language, who mm -hmm. only with his eyes let everybody know we going to war. Black did that, didn't he? All right. How did he do that? Who did? But because then again, what we're doing, he tearing and listening. That's all I'm saying. So, I mean, this work is about opening yourselves up to the possibility of what it looks like when you're actually in community with, yes. with people. Because religion only works when we all agree. Your God is only powerful. Your God is only powerful when mm -hmm. we collectively understand the power of God. Otherwise, you know, you you pray into the air. But you know what? That's so funny. You said that because I was thinking, of course, we talked a little bit about Anita uh, Pointer. I was looking at her. Um, you know, obviously the sister, our sister points since we made transition, uh, and looking at her uh, obituary, and it reminded me. Remember that. Um, Remember Car Wash when they played the Wilson Sisters? When they came out with Richard Pryor? Yes. 
You better believe in something. Come on. Why, Why not believe in me? me? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it's so funny, right? Because uh, Clarence Muse, who is interesting how that cast is put together, of course, but Clarence Muse, who played the Shoeshine Man, was a contemporary of overlapping with Woody Strode, Paul Robeson, early film, film star. And so he's playing the Shoeshine Man. And he's kind of, and then Richard Pryor sitting there. And behind Richard Pryor, you got a picture of John F. Kennedy. Then his Richard Pryor sitting here on the other side of Richard Pryor's shoulder is Martin Luther King. And then the Richard Pryor preacher character. So, of course, the classic black barber, uh, black shoe stand, he's shining shoes. And, of course, this man giving him his money, this kind of thing. And then when Abdullah, Bill Duke, playing the black nationalist, the revolutionary, you pimping these people, you sound like a pimp. And then Richard Pryor was like, uh, you, uh. You gonna disrespect these sisters over here? Yeah, the the Wilson sisters are the finest sisters in the line. He was like, if if I wasn't a Christian man, I'd come down here and whip your behind. He was like, well, come on, why don't you come on? He said, nah, I'm gonna drop some knowledge on your sisters, get them straight. And then they started singing that song. I was thinking about Anita Point. You got to believe something. Why not believe in me? And then so and really in the lyrics though, they're engaged in a the critique. They said, you're a revolutionary, do your thing, but why don't you let me do mine? And then you realize that uh, as you said, whatever you call it. I mean, there are those among us who are atheists, who are agnostics, but you can't deny the power when we are in collective. You say, well, well y'all get together and y'all in church and people start getting happy. That's that God. That's just some chemical reaction. Okay, well, you got to believe something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and what we're building together, you know, is being very, very, very solidly built because it's us. It's us. And it's so beautiful. <laughs> and and for whatever reason, and I'm, I want to thank the universe uh, again, because, you know, um, to be corrupted at, a, at an early age, to be corrupted at your lowest point, um, mm-hmm. to be, uh, you know, handed a life raft when, you know, uh, but to be handed a to to grab a life raft of your own people mm. makes it. um impossible to turn away from that. Like there's no, no Hollywood, no, no, no place on earth that can move this. There's not a dollar amount. And I feel like that is, as we we're going to have a conversation today about Bruce's beach. It is that, that we should require of anybody that is leading anything that they can't be moved by the dangling, the jingling baby of the pockets of somebody telling to you with some coin t- to to what exactly? Because they understand the long game. And this is compound interest at its best in a human form. They understand generations. They understand the ability to not to not serve yourself, but generations to come, because that's how you you know, stand the test of time. The Egyptians understood that, the Nubians, the Kim, Kim, you know, people in Timbuktu, everybody understood it. We lost that memory. We need to remember. Um, but yeah, uh, it's disappointing that so many of us, you know, will take that million dollars and not see the billions of... of Oh, the, our, our Bruce our Bruce Beach uh, folks. Well, you know, you asked the question uh, when you, uh, yesterday, you know, so, so Larry had a uh, Larry Daniel Favors, who's of course, yes, uh, yeah, yes. so he has a show, of course, on Sirius XM. I've talked about it briefly, and I, I've been hesitant because I don't want to excoriate people for making a, a human decision. You know, people have needs, I'm not here to deny needs. Easy 20 million dollars could be a life changing amount of money, you Absolutely. know, 
um, a million dollars could be a life-changing amount of money. I'm not here Absolutely. to do that. Well, um, I mean, for some people, and I, you know, we see them on the streets of Washington, D.C. and the streets of New... For some people who are unhoused today, $100 could be a chance. <laughs> so like you said, I mean, what it, what would it take for you to be out of harm's way or to feel more secure? And for them, the price is $20 million. So, so I'm, you said, Larissa, I'm, y'all, so you, I'm talking about it like, e. Uh, no, no, no. This is beautiful. We have yeah. to talk about it. You asked the question. You said, well, most important, what happens if there is no we? We know there's no we. Well, this is um, and, and Larie brought this up in her on her show yesterday. There's a columnist, Erica D. Smith. Uh, mm-hmm. She writes for the Washington Post. I just invited mm-hmm. her on my show, so she's oh, wonderful. Good. I'm looking forward to it. But she wrote a column about it, uh, where she asked the question. You know, because Bruce's Beach was returned to the family of the, the Bruce family. Because activists, not the family, mm-hmm. people in the community made a decision to fight to get this land returned to its rightful owners. Right. And the community that fought to get this return was not. Say, it, it seems so. Okay. So tell me, tell me your reading of it. No, 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 please. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just want to say right. it seems so because I think that there's, you know, and Laurie, you know, a lawyer, a, um, a liberation fighter and again with you kind of attracting all of us into this broader conversation and you obviously you're not alone i mean you know roland martin is doing his thing and i work a lot with roland uh, a lot of people who are doing their thing but you know byron allen bought this flip the griot okay but you know if we were all collectively again you talk about this all the time we were all collectively together even in that thing it would have maybe a multiplying effect. And then again, maybe not in the sense that the kind of energy that you've attracted here and that has its own energy and it continues to grow is anchored in a kind of sensibility that is very, that is impossible really to displace because there's a selflessness involved. And so listening to Larie enter this conversation with all those skill sets and that energy is what makes it transformative. So I didn't want to interrupt you. I just wanted to say, so come on, we're, we're, we're gonna get, we're gonna walk through this. I want to say this. Um, we're stronger together. I've reached out to every single person that you can imagine to uh-huh. That's why I people because okay. I know I reached out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And not just reached out, but you know, offered you know an opportunity to come together. I no feel problem. like you know we all on our own journeys. You know, my journey is collective. I can't, I can't um, besmirch anybody's character who's not, you know, operating in the same vein and for whatever reason. Um, but we are not going, we we're not going to um, be moved and also still embraced because at the same time, like we need everybody, all everybody. I don't care if you ain't trying to be down with me. I'm down with you. So, exactly. so exactly. what? Um, I mean, I must, I must note that the principal of Jack Yates High School in Houston, a sister who's doing some incredible work, the Houston School Board is getting ready to fire her this week. It's some politics down there, some black. But Roland went down there and testified and said, "Look, I give a lot of money scholarships here. If y'all fire her, I'm taking all my money out." And his, I think his voice was the one that tipped it over. And at that same meeting, they voted to keep her. I said, "So I mean, we all have our way <laughs> to do." But yes. you're right. You're right. In time. <laughs> In time. So, so this column um, that the re-reference yeah. um, yeah. just kind of lays out, you know, the activism of you know Kavan Ward. And so many others who fought 
Los Angeles County to return the land that Willa and Charles Bruce owned, where they had a lodge and a dance hall for black beachgoers. Now, now what y'all need to know is black people couldn't just willy-nilly go on beaches. We couldn't go to pools. We we were not allowed. Like somehow uh, racism has uh, been able to, to carve up the ocean. To tell you where, I mean, you think about Lake Lanier, you know, I mean, like, how, where's the imaginary line where if I cross over now I'm in the white part of the water? How, how does this work? But yeah, we couldn't just go to the beach, which, you know, is is probably an abomination for people from an African, you know, particularly mostly coastal folk. We love the, you know, the ocean, the beach, the water is everything. Yimaya, if you talk about it. No question. So Bruce Beach, um, Willa and Charles, they they had two lots, 1912. Uh, they were successful. They built homes nearby. And then here came the Ku, Ku, Klux, Klan, Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. Mm-hmm. And um, they seized the beach. And then the county seized it in eminent domain, 1924. So folk fought. I mean, 1924 to now. I mean, was it almost 100 years? Almost 100 years. Uh, so it was returned last year. And the county was leasing it for $413,000 a year. They couldn't build on it. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't apply, you know, and with the might of the people. Yes, it, I'm sure the zoning laws would have been changed so they could put on it what was there before and turn it into a resort. I don't know. But they well, sold it. See, this is it. This is it. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. So, so in the conversation, how do you process that? Um, as what do you think? I think that when you are, when you are in lack in this country, this world, um, you know, foments lack, particularly among black people, not just people of color, black people in particular, the system is designed to keep black people in a particular place, period, full stop. Those of us that have broken through, it is not, uh, on purpose. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it, it is in spite of not because of like, yes, there's opportunities for all of us. And if you just worked hard, if you just did that, well, explain redlining and explain the, the, the lawsuit against Wells Fargo and city national recently that now has to come up with money to government, federal government sued them because they did not give loans to black people did not open banks in, black areas these things are not you know and they're happening today your appraisal on your home it's not a it's not a coincidence the fact that the algorithms say that you don't deserve a loan the algorithms are racist shout out to sophia noble so yeah fine about it go ahead i'm looking for you've had her on your show yes uh was it Best Rob Badarian, right? The Color of Money. I was rereading oh, yeah. this in the context. Absolutely. That book, put that book up again for everybody. Read that book. She ain't black, but she, she spent 10 she years that. writing that book. 10 yeah. years. Now, of course, her solution is you got to change the structure. And this dovetails with folks like uh, Jared Ball and the myth of black buying power. You've got to change the structure. You can't black bank, black wealth your way into liberation. However, that is not to say that you should not try, because even at the end of this book, she's still saying, yeah, you got to dismantle this system. But it's better to have black banks than not, even though black banks, because they are they are still segregated. As you say, the money is not segregated, but the people don't have access to capitalists. They can't get loans, can't flip. So as a result, if you put your money in a black bank, 
it does have an impact in one way, but that money then now is sucked back into the white system because those black banks are beholden to the super banks. And of course, Financial Times today, Jamie Dimon and them are saying, let's just hold on while these huge banks, JP Morgan being large in the United States, are now beginning to hoard their billions in anticipation of the recession. So, I mean, I'm just, you know, as you're making this point, you know, there are those who would say, well, are you telling us we should not try to build institutions? No, quite the opposite. But don't expect that those institutions are going to free us. This structure has to be changed. So anyway, but I just wanted to inject that as you were talking, because you've talked to all these people. You talked to Messerer, you talked to Jared, you've had all these kinds of things. Like I, I did a one-on-one conference with One United Bank mm -hmm. interviewing Mercer. So mm -hmm. it, yeah, no, like this has kind of been, when I started the radio show, my whole goal was to rebuild Black Wall Street, right? And I didn't know you then, and I didn't know about a whole lot of things that I know now. But I was like, why can't we seize the cities that we live in? Um, Baltimore, okay, all of those homes. Newark, Ross Baraka, I just had uh, the head of NACA on this week. Ross Baraka is selling homes for a dollar in Newark. And NACA is giving loans, construction loans as well, to the people in the community who have bought those, the one, and it's going through them. So it's coming to us because 90% of the people who go and get a knock alone are black. And so, yeah, Ross is doing it because he can do that as mayor. Now, mayor of Baltimore, time for you to step your young self up. No question. Stop, stop selling out to, I get it. Corporations are sexy. Those no multinational question. corporations that want to come in, those developers is sexy, but the people are the ones that are going to make your city hot. That's right. So empower the people. Not right. the people that are rich and power. Corporations are people. I know, you know, thank you, Citizens United. Corporations are people, but people are really the heart, the lifeblood of our community. And so why not do what they're doing in Newark? It's going to work, by the and way. That, and that's important because you're also teaching us this lesson in being working in tandem and coalition. And while we're doing the work of thinking, tearing with ideas, thinking about the complexity. We don't throw any tool in our toolbox away. The mayor of Newark is not a revolutionary in terms of his job description. His parents are revolutionaries. He's a revolutionary at heart. But as mayor, he can do certain things. And then it's up to us. Larry, it's just Larry Ham, the People's Organization in Newark. They're having a March Martin Luther King uh, on uh, tomorrow, the actual birthday of Martin Luther King. I mean, they're in the streets. Rice comes out. He comes out the streets, but he's not in the street right now. He's in the mayor. And so what he's doing is this is what I can do. Now, you have those who would then say, oh, he ain't doing enough. Everybody calm down. <laughs> can we work together? <laughs> so you're making that point. And it's very important for us to hear that. Because you can yeah. be ideologically pure and take the L and now you're pure and we ain't got nothing. I feel like we, you know, we don't have the capacity to to hold space for that. I feel like we compromise too much. And at the same time, we don't hold space for the possibilities that, you know, um, sometimes the things that need to work, we need to make them work instead right. of thinking about it, you know. And to your point, Ross Baraka, there was a lot of controversy when he came into office, you know, uh, Shavar, who I know as well. Like there, there's a lot of good people who want the same thing and maybe they're coming at it different ways as we just mentioned roland's doing something different than i'm doing but we yeah. have a similar goal you yeah. know and at the end of the day that should predominate over everything That's you know right. and it, you know, some people don't like and it's like we we are naturally conditioned to pick sides That's don't right. decide we should pick is freedom that's right for all <laughs> like that yeah. is it how do it free us okay thank you sonia sanchez it doesn't so let's stop right move forward um 
So to the point, you know, the the family of the the Bruce family, the descendants of the Bruces, who I can't even imagine, you know, what it would take in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds to develop this land, but I can because Greenwood, Rosewood, uh, Eatonville, you know, there's so many Wilmington, so many examples of of building. Because guess what we came here to do? That's right. We came here to build. So right. this is what we know. It, how probably, to do. it probably took less then than it would take now. You think so? Well, because I think, you know, we often went places where other people didn't want to go. Now they want to be there. I mean, uh, you know, the Pacific Ocean is going to have something to say about what is now called Manhattan Beach. I was reading in the Days Financial Times. In fact, the storms that are out there that are assaulting California, uh, they've captured about a billion and a half gallons of water in the dams in California, but many, 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 many more billions have flowed into the ocean because they've allowed over the last 50 years the infrastructure to lapse. And so now they're floating ideas to create smaller water uh, capturing units across the state because they got a billion plus in a reserve that they haven't used that they wanted. But that's going to take decades. And so they now they tell, well, the drought is coming in. If you have been prepared and thinking about the people instead of these businesses, you would be prepared to help people. But I'm saying all that to say that the Pacific Ocean might wipe away Manhattan Beach. And I'm saying, you know, I mean, so, but but in that context, you raise these questions. So I'll ask them. No, 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 no. I mean, it's important. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just raising it because, yeah. Okay, let me let me be quiet. Please raise them. Birthday weekend. First of all, I want, I want to, um, uh, you know, raise up. I need to talk with Julianne Mal- Malvo, who's cited in this article as well, who's a whole yeah. economist. Yes. Uh, and uh, she is the dean of ethnic studies at Cal State LA. So she yeah, she said she said uh, as it relates to the selling, she said it was a collective consciousness, not just that family that allowed that land transfer. They have a right to satisfy their individual needs and desires, she said. But some of us have a right not to like it. And so in this article, the the author asked the question, you know, and I'm asking it: What does it mean for us to own land? you know, um, in these spaces of trauma, right? For, this is my question now. So land ownership, you know, we tout that because this nation was built by wealthy landowners and we were promised 40 acres and a mule and land is everything. Land and land is everything in America, except if eminent domain can take it, except if somebody can come in and push you off your land as has happened to many of our ancestors with no recourse because the government will say, you know, you don't have any rights. Uh, what is land in the land of, of lawlessness? What is what is land's value in a world that has that devalues us? What is what is ownership of land in a nation whose founding is reaped in violence and destruction? Like I, so I'm asking that question. I'm saying that as somebody that owns land, like land is important, I think, for wealth building. But we really need to ask that question, like, what does land ownership mean to us, and especially if it's only singular and not collective, because then how do you defend your land? And can we really build generational wealth? You know, does that $20 million, how long is that going to last? You know, do we even understand what that means? And is that going to be putting into an, into an endowment that the family lives off the interest? Like, who's planning that? And what does that mean to us as a community? And finally, you know, can we build community after we lost our gatekeepers, our healers, and our true griots to Dr. Daniel Black's point in the coming? You know, that's the first the first line of, of the 
that they took out the gatekeepers who saw everything and who also understood forward and back the healers, because how do you repair after they come through and destroy everything, including your very soul? And, you know, how, how do we repair when we don't have our storytellers, you know, right. So as a community, we're, I think you and I and several others are doing that storytelling part and trying to piece those things back together, you know, but where are our healers and our group and our gatekeepers? Do we have gatekeepers, Dr. Carr today? Um, well, in order to have gatekeepers, I suppose we'd have to have a gate in order to have a gate. We'd have to have a fence in order to have a fence. We'd have to have something behind the fence in order to have something behind the fence. We'd have to have agreed to have built it in the first place. So I don't know that we have need gatekeepers at this point because there's no gate because there's no fence because there's no structure behind the fence because there's no common sense of what we need. Individuals don't be the institutions. I think the people, the, the, the Bruce family made the best decision for them. And as uh, Dr. Malvo, our friend and sister Julianne Malvo said, they have every right to do that. And therein lies the problem. Because we live in a social structure where they have every right to do that. And so what you're raising are deeper questions, which is why we had to have an Africana studies framework, because we can't even think with and through and around the issues until we can put our finger on them. And this um, this article centered reparations because the reclamation of Bruce's beach was seen as a victory for reparations, right? So what do we do now that it's- I don't know why, but, but we can keep- I know, talking. I know. So, so she raises, the author raises the question. She said, you know, what are reparations really about? So I want to sit with that. And she said, is it about righting historical wrongs, making a quick buck, building a better, fairer future for all Black people? In reality, it's all of the above, but that doesn't uh, get talked about often. And she says- and there are other questions among them. What exactly are we fighting for? What right. happens if we can't reach an agreement on what we're fighting for? And perhaps most important, what happens if there is no we? And that all that's I was like, Dr. Carr says that all the no, time. No question. And that's it. V plants 87 and say America is a colony of stolen land. Right. You know, it's funny, Prof, uh, because again, these questions and you raised them and put them out, sent me back to the shelves again. And here we are, Martin Luther King, birthday weekend. And I spent most of all my classes on Thursday with undergraduate students talking about Martin Luther King. And virtually none of them knew very much about the way that the holiday that will be celebrated in the United States of America or marked, commemorated on Monday here in the U.S., how, how it came to be. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue, because Dr. King, remember, we had that conversation last March for the month. We read, where do we go from here? Chaos or community where Martin King talks about the future of the world in that chapter, the world house. We spent a lot of time with Dr. King. And by the way, I want to uh, mention that too, because in the context of what we were talking about at the very beginning, you know, we've introduced so much in the last coming on three years and in sitting with it. And now, particularly since the team has expanded and we got these young folk who really work with technology, who can go back and absorb and repurpose things that we've talked about. There's so much to delayer. There's so much to unpack. There's so much to revisit, to tarry with, to pause, as we talked about um, months ago, last year, in fact, to delayer to listen 
And as the clips from narrative start getting rolled out and newbie moment, these moment of conversation, we talked extensively about Martin Luther King and all the conversations we had around uh, where do we go from here? Chaos, the community, of course, are, are in the repository, in the archive and narrative. And those rich conversations, which are global conversations with thousands of people every week going through page by page, chapter by chapter, what emerges is a Martin King who was not a capitalist. And I mentioned books like um, Prophet of Discontent, a recent book by Jared Douglas and Jared Log Andrew Douglas and Jared Loggins, which opens with Martin King in uh, intense conversation with his lieutenants in terms of strategy. And Andrew Young offers something. And in fact, let me not misquote Dr. King. Let me just quote it from Prophets of Discontent. Because we talked about all this again, where he says, um, in fact, they were in Newark. And he says, in fact, let me just read it. In, on March 27, 1968, a week before he was killed in Memphis, Martin Luther King joined Stanley Levison, Andrew Young, and several other confidants for an evening gathering at the New York City apartment of the singer and civil rights activist Harry Belafonte. Earlier that day, King had met with the poet of Mary Baraka in Newark. Of course, the father of Ras Baraka, the current mayor that you just mentioned, Prof. A city still reeling from the deadly riots of the previous summer. And let me shout out as well, his wife, Amina, still swinging with both fists in the city of Newark. It was a city King feared that was poised to erupt all over again. At the time, King was working to organize the Poor People's Campaign. Shout out to Liz Theo Harris and Reverend William Barber. Of course, they were here this summer. In fact, Dr. Malvo and myself were co-anchoring a stretch for WPFW and the Pacifica Network at the march, the Poor People's March, Poor and Low Wealth People. These are the people who are not included in the tax breaks. These are the people who do most of the living and dying in this country and in the world. At the time, he was working on getting that march together, of course, as we know. What was to be a multiracial march on an occupation of and occupation of Washington, D.C. And so they, they, they're talking about that and in New York that evening. King was in a surly mood, quote, unquote. He confided in Belafonte and others that Newark and his meeting with the militant Baraka had gotten to him. That suffocating conditions there and an increasing willingness to among the city's youth to embrace violent resistance tactics were once again testing his long haul strategy of nonviolent change. Quote, I wholly embrace everything they feel end quote, King said, of the militant contingent in Newark. He went on to say, I have more in common with these young people than with anybody else in this movement. I feel their rage. I feel their pain. I feel their frustration. It's the system that's the problem and it's choking the breath out of our lives. Now, here's where I'll end in this paragraph. As Belafonte recalls of the conversation that evening, it was Andrew Young, the future U.S. congressman and ambassador to the United Nations, and mayor of Atlanta, who unwittingly ratcheted up King's anger. I don't know, Martin, Young said. It's not the entire system. It's only part of it. And I think we can fix that. King was having none of it. I don't need to hear from you, Andy. He clapped back. You're a capitalist. And I'm not. The trouble is that we live in a failed system. Capitalism does not permit even an even flow of economic resources. Within this system, a small privileged few are rich beyond conscience. And almost all others are doomed to be poor at some level. That's the way the system works. And since we know that the system will not change the rules, we are going to have to change the system. Martin King was dead within the week. And I was rereading a recent book that Andrew Young, his daughter Andrea, and Harvey Newman, 
who was a professor emeritus at Georgia State, wrote called Andrew Young and the Making of Modern Atlanta. This man wants what we want for black people and for humanity, but his way to go about it is decidedly transnational capitalist. Now, there are those who say he's a sellout. He's a no, calm down. This man put his whole life on the line. This is the son of New Orleans. He and his wife, you know, devout Christian, devout capitalist, but he put and he put his life on the line. There are critiques to be made of all of us, but what we hear him being told by Martin King, you're a capitalist, Andy. I'm not a capitalist. And Atlanta is a thriving economy. T.I. Killer Mike and this are Wakanda. Yeah, no, chief. Not if you ain't got no money. Not if you're downtown Atlanta where the mega bus pulls up and you see the people nowhere to live out there on the street. Not if you can't afford to live in the increasingly pricey Atlanta and they put you out into the suburbs and leave you there except you want to do pull your shift and they're not going to build a rail system in certain places. Nah, because you can't beat capitalism. But we live in a society where those who say capitalism must be destroyed are saying it over speakers and computers that they paid for with money. Some of them college professors and they pulling out money to go everywhere. I don't see you not paying your taxes. I don't see you not going uh, to work. OK, so while you're in the system, how do you move it together? But here's where I want the rubber meets the road and has a relation uh, to Bruce's Beach. And as we think about this. While we are surrounded by this system. We have to figure out ways not just to negotiate it, to survive, but to ultimately dismantle it for the good of not just people of African descent, for the good of the species, and more importantly, for the good of the planet. Because see, the planet is going to reset and get rid of this species if we don't come up with something different. Capitalism isn't just the economic system, it's a cultural sensibility. And we often preface our agree to disagree remarks by saying that people have the right. Well, you have the right to do whatever you want. Pause. No, you don't. Nature tells us we don't have the right to do everything we want. Why? Because you, if you do something harmful to the earth, if enough of us do it, ultimately the earth going to respond in a way to take you out of the equation. So the notion even of rights is very culturally specific, but I don't get too far off into that. I want to, because the questions that were raised that you echoed and amplified and added to are the ones that should drive us. What do we want? Who is we? We start talking about repair. What does that mean as the earth fights to repair itself from this invasive species called Homo sapiens? Well, about 20 years ago, 23 years ago now, uh, no, 20, almost 24 now, uh, when we started Philadelphia Freedom Schools in, Philadelphia, in, in Philly, the first book that we read, and I've said this before, but again, the archive in narrative, if we never entered another conversation, is tremendous, man. Almost three years of conversation added to the years of conversation that you've been having, Prof, added to the conversations that we all have when we convene, all archived. And if we did nothing else but index and cross-reference and dig deeper and lay out lines based on the conversations we've had, it'd take us a decade. And I'm just, you know, blessed that we are, we're here continuing and growing and expanding exponentially. And, like, and as you said, Prof, those of you who are watching this who are not yet or not in narrative with Nubia and in this broader YouTube community, which may, you know, we don't want them to pull the master switch because this allows us to even exponentially increase the, re the reach. Well, go ahead and destroy the algorithm. Hit the like button. Subscribe to this channel. Let's just keep going. Now, um, 
because it didn't just in class on Saturday. It's all of those smaller clips that come in between Saturday to Saturday that are on this channel. So subscribe to, to this channel. We're, we're at full spectrum. But this book came out the year after we started Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Randall Robinson's book, The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. This is a book that continued a tradition of writing and thinking and organizing and, and protesting and networking and community and institution building around the idea of reparations that goes back over a century before this book was written. So I picked this book for our high school students in Philadelphia to read in Philadelphia Freedom Schools. And so we came together and read, read that book. A couple of years later, this book was published by Mary Frances Berry, Professor Mary Frances Berry, 2005, My Face is Black is true. Callie House and the struggle for ex-slave reparations. Yeah, we wait, read, she's going to be on my show on Monday. Oh, you got I can't even believe the serendipity. And I just started rereading okay. the deck because I got three copies in my house. You know, one of those know right. three <laughs> uh, hardcover, two paperbacks. I don't even know why I have three copies of that. You know what? I haven't talked to Randall Robinson in years, but that would be another one. I would love to hear y'all had this conversation. Um, because we read we read several of his books, which is where I'm going with this. But I'm so glad to hear you have Professor Barry coming up. Because again, the idea that this reparations conversation is new is part of the problem. This is where I'm going. And I ain't left Bruce Beach. I'm sitting on the beach with my toes in the water. We're gonna get to Bruce Beach. We haven't left Bruce Beach, in fact. But so I'm so glad to hear you say that. So yeah, we had the high school students read this. Now, in retrospect, a couple of decades later. Looking back over the arc of all the books we read together, all those high school students over all those years, and I'm not talking about five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 high school students every summer and then during the year. I'm talking about a couple of hundred, several hundred at its largest and college students and the elementary school students. They would make lessons from after all these years. If I look back and say, well, were, were we forcing those kids to read something that was that it was premature, something they might have encountered in college? Or The answer to that is yes. Hell yes, it is. Why? Because we aren't trying to improve the edges of a system that was built to keep them from engaging their ancestors, from doing that deep work. No, we're trying to destroy that system. We're not trying to destroy that system just through protests, because we always had social action. Shout out to Cedric Miles, who for many years was the coordinator for the Freedom Schools. No, we were building the world we wanted to be in. Now, I'm, I'm saying all that to say this. The debt, Randall Robinson's book on reparation, which exists as of the year 2000 between Omari Abubakari Obadeli and Chokwe uh, Lumumba and um, um, Nkichi Taifa's reparation, yes, and Queen Mother Audley Moore in the night from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and all of the other reparation stuff, all the way back to Marcus Garvey, all the way back to Cali How. So, 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 so Randall Robinson is coming in relatively late in the reparations conversation that is unbroken. But as of 2023, when we think reparations, this name is rarely brought up. And Randall Robinson still walks to earth, which leads me to the third book in his trilogy. After he wrote The Debt, he wrote a book called The Reckoning. So you went from, and in fact, this really in some ways is the seed for the African, as another contributing stream to the African studies framework we created. The debt was what America owes to blacks. And of course, we know it's not just America, it's the world. What does the world owe to African people? I was just looking at another book that just came out recently. I think this brother uh, right here, uh, Chris 
Manjafra, I've showed y'all this book, Black Ghost of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation. This is a global conversation we're having, and I won't go through that because, again, we've got this extensive archive and narrative in Nubia where we've had the reparations conversation in a much longer and deeper level. And that's not what we're here today to do. If you wanted to see that and, and join in that and join what we have done and are continuing to do with all the other conversations that are going on around the world around reparations and all the organizing work, it's there. Because like you said, we've got an independent space where all that has been contributed and here we have conversations. So the first book, The Debt, a couple of years later, The Reckoning. Then the third in the trilogy, maybe my favorite, quite frankly, Randall Robinson wrote a book called Quitting America, The Departure of a Black Man from His Native Land. He gone. He come back and forth. We talked about that before. Randall Robinson, uh, his wife, who's from the Caribbean, you know, he lived in the Caribbean, and he goes back and forth. He taught for a time at Penn State while he was anchored down there. You know, he's from Richmond, so, I mean, he's back and forth. But my base of operations is now outside of America. He was building toward that. So when we were working on the curriculum and, you know, I was thinking about these conceptual categories, okay, the social structure category, who are Africans to other people, is a necessary category because that's usually how we talk about ourselves through the eyes, through the systems, through the structures, through the imaginations of other people. That's why we call ourselves minorities. That's why we count it as a victory when demographically somebody like a Gerard Carmichael comes to the Golden Globes. That's when we say that, you know, he says something brilliant by stating the obvious. Why am I here? I'm here because I'm black. Wow, that was brilliant. Really? That's a social structure uh, analysis. Governance, who we are to each other, which is why Eddie Murphy at those same Golden Globes, he said, was there three lessons I want y'all to learn? You know, pay taxes, uh, whatever the second one was, and then keep your keep my wife's name out your... <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> it's dead. Well, yeah, Eddie Murphy had a governance structure moment in the middle of the social structure. So, I mean, all these things, all this kind of translation stuff, and we got an, all that survival technique. Really not interested in it. But we had to have a category to capture it so that people who think that when we're talking in social structure language, we're talking about ourselves can now identify. No, no, that's a dimension of our experience as a consequence of the circumstance we find ourselves in. But the governance category is much more interesting. And I think the governance category in some ways comes out in Randall Robinson's Quitting America. We haven't left Bruce's beach. Toe's still in the water. Coming to Bruce's beach. This is what he writes near the end at the end of Quitting America. Randall Robinson writes, he writes it in a series of letters. July 9th, 2003. I'll be damned, 20 years ago, this July. He says, I have lived my life within the innermost of concentric circles. My comfort, my protection, my psychic security provided by the bold unbroken line of the smaller of the rings. Two countries, one within the other. Sounds like Martin Delaney, a nation within a nation. Right. Sounds like segregation, nations within a nation. No, it was Erna Burston's birthday last week. We're going to bring up Zora again in a minute in this context. Two concentric circles. He says, I've lived my life within the smaller circle. He goes on and says two countries, one within the other. The other official, I'm sorry, the outer, the outer circle, official, distant, alien, unaffirming, hostile. That would be like LA County, state of California. Anywhere Europeans have been and tried to reduce 
non-Europeans to some hierarchy of humanity with Europeans at the center and everybody else in concentric circles in the periphery away from the center of humanity. He says, the other, safe for my spirit's function, respectful of my long sequestered story, loving of my me. The segregated community of Richmond where he grew up, his brother Max Robinson grew up, Arthur Ashe grew up, where they learned the excellence that would propel them to global fame and global notoriety. The, uh, uh, Bruce's Beach, before it was Manhattan Beach, you know, where we could go and be safe. And there's a, there's a book called Free the Beaches. In fact, there's several books on black beaches, segregated beaches in the United States of America, for those of you not in the United States of America. Well, within those circles, uh, Frederick Douglass's shore home in Maryland that he had, which is in a, a, a black community in Maryland where black folk who got money can buy those houses. Again, there's a class dimension to this. This man's a lawyer. Jones, I'm sorry, I keep saying Jones Beach. Bruce's Beach is important. Remember now, you had to have $12,000 to buy the lot in the first place. Or $1,200 to buy the lot in the first place. So where did you get the money? I mean, you know, this idea of black striving class, this isn't the people who don't have money. It does provide a place so that people who don't have money can come. But the people who don't have money are still paying the people who have money, even though they're doing for the race. They're doing well while doing good. Segregation provided that kind of hierarchy, whether it be Black Wall Street in Tulsa, whether it be the Black community, uh, business districts in Atlanta and Memphis. And we've talked about, remember, we talked so long about Robert Church and Memphis. All these things converge, but we have to delayer them and sit and tarry with them. And, and, what, and what Randall Robinson is saying is that I lived in that Black circle, which with, once you get in that governance formation, that comes out of enslavement, you start seeing those class hierarchies. Did we have class hierarchies in Africa? We absolutely did. Dan Black explored some of that in the coming. But what that trauma of transportation required us to do is cooperate in a way that we may not have ever gotten to in Africa, but we don't know whether we would have ever gotten there or not. And that's not even really the question. Howard French raises that in, of course, Born in Blackness. Let me continue. He says, the country of my recorded birth, the country of my heart. How I once wished them one and the same. Pause. They're not the same, y'all. The country of my recorded birth. For those of you in the United States of America, you were born here or you're a nationalized citizen, that's U.S. The country of my heart. Yeah, that's not U.S. You, you can't expect this country to do the right thing by African people when the whole premise of the country is grounded in not doing the right thing by African people. You're here because of a criminal act, an ongoing criminal enterprise. You were brought into a field of settler violence that is premised in violence against other human beings. And the thing that holds it together is not this glorious polyglot, this melting pot, this tapestry, this salad bowl. No, the thing that holds it together is the memory of those acts of foundational violence violence, otherwise known as patriotism and citizenship. And if the heart of those are whiteness, and anytime you try to get close to contesting them, you will be rebuked until you calibrate your blackness, calibrate your indigeneity, calibrate your Latinx or Latino, however you want to put it, calibrate your non-whiteness in a way that enters that white core of identity in a way that is inoffensive, unobtrusive and non-threatening. It's a very important thing to understand. Now, what the social structure doesn't understand that those of us who enter that space have our own internal debates about what we can do and what are the limits, whether it be Ras Baraka, 
selling homes for a dollar and providing the type of support that can allow people in, which if he pushes the limits too far, the banks and the investors, go, hold on, now, hold on, whether it's Hakeem Jeffries rhyming in a speech that was, you know, a great speech, but at the same time, pushing policy that will help the poor, which means helps us, but not, does it help us enough? No. Does it help us more than the white nationalists on the other side? Absolutely. But understand that that type, that price of admission is that you got to calibrate some of that stuff, right? Randall Robinson goes on and says, the larger of the two, powerful and world-beating, is literally and technically a real country. It has borders and bureaucracies and ladders of well-described authorities. The smaller of the two, this is the governance formation, these are African people, is really not a country at all. It has no borders, no organs of operation, no recognition of it anywhere as a sovereign entity unto itself. It is not even a place, but many places. Yet it is indivisible. And it is wherever black people live, joined into one by a common historic event and thence by a common consciousness. This is what blacks write about in the coming. This, the figurative country of my race, is that to which America has prepared me over time to owe my first allegiance. Watch out now. Mm -mm. You own your first allegiance? You're an American first. Mm. The people I've witnessed saying America first ain't talking about me. But the deeper question is, why in the hell would I ever say America first, knowing the history of this criminal enterprise? Why would I ever sign up for that? We celebrate the Buffalo soldiers. Those men were fighting for survival. And they fought for a settler colonial military. And they were on the wrong side many times on the border with the United States and Mexico. In the army of the United States, some of them figured it out and went into Mexico and never came back. Went AWOL. Gerald Horn wrote a whole book about it called Black and Brown. Some of them retired in the military. Some of them became Negro scouts and they were with the Seminole scouts. People who themselves had been rolled on who then joined the United States military for a number of reasons. One of which for some of them, for many of them, was to negotiate terms by which their people could survive. All this stuff is set in place by settler violence. What Randall Robinson is saying is, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I owe my first allegiance to my people. Now, those people are a we that we are in constant creation of because it didn't exist in Africa. We've talked about that many times. We're going to talk about it Monday night at length. Black is chomping at the bit. He said, everybody come in. Let's have this conversation. Because this we is in constant formation. But what happens when we don't have in place spaces like this where we can sit and tarry with what we means? Where we can think about the long arc of our existence as a species, which goes back millions of years and hundreds of thousands of years and tens of thousands of years and pre-boat all the way up until literally a few minutes ago in the arc of human existence when these boats show up, which means not nearly long enough in terms of when the boats show up to erase all that came before the boats. And in fact, the reason we're still here has very little to do with Washington and Jefferson and the system they set up and, and everything to do with the fortifying cultural principles and our will and desire to resist oppression that has animated us. Randall Robinson said, that's the we I'm talking about. That, that blackness that he says is animated by one common historic event. And I would say dimensions of it, whether it be enslavement or colonialism for all the Africans in the continent and other places. And thence by a common consciousness. Now, the consciousness gets tricky. This is when people say for the culture. 
Right. For the culture. Well, what does that mean? I'm really culture is almost a place marker for the concept of consciousness. Hence our category ways of knowing, not way of knowing, ways of knowing. There are many different ways of knowing in Africana. Some of them contradict each other because we are still grappling with the idea of a we that is beyond just demography. See, because if we we often conflate demog demographic with consciousness. So we see a Gerard Cunningham, we see black. So you're expecting him to say something particularly because his skin looked like you? Because he grew up in communities that look like, okay, yeah. And when he doesn't do it, then here come the knives. No, everybody calm down. Because the we we got to build, first of all, can't it can't be anchored in how white people re re uh, react to a black person. So much of our celebration, and that comes from the trauma, is when a black, when a white person recognizes us. He was the first. Okay, you care. And I understand why you care. The trauma is there. I could give a rat's ass. <laughs> no, actually, I couldn't give a rat's ass because a rat needs his ass. I really couldn't care less. And so, you know, the idea of a performative blackness in that space, I'm not against it. I'm not for it either. I'm indifferent because it doesn't impact me unless it's going to lead to some form of resource transfer to some people whose consciousness isn't anchored in being figments of white imagination. And that's fine too. Go with God, you do you, do you. but we got to do we now. And so Robinson goes on and says, thus I have only left America and not the country that I love, the country of Africans in America where my mother lives, the country where my friend in Haiti remembers everything, the country where crumbling manuscripts in Timbuktu defend my ancient identity, the country of unprepossessing civility, where I now, for the first time, live. Spiritually free as never before. He talking about the Caribbean where he lives now with his wife. The country of obsidian splendor. Obsidian, of course, is black splendor and post-slavery privation. The country of the whole of Africa's issue, meaning all of us, and their story, then, now, and forever like an opportunistic infection a mindless fealty to any flag oh any flag i got a man i've got another brilliant set of i you know every semester i get a brilliant set of students at howard law school to sit with in community for several months as we walk through this class that i teach there and have taught there now for about 15 years last semester those kids turned me inside out brilliant this semester, I see now they're about to turn me inside out. We already had a conversation. And, then, you know, as is the case, anytime you get a bunch of black people together in the United States of America, there are going to be a healthy number of them who come from outside the United States of America, either them or their parents or their parents. And in the conversation, we were, we started talking about continental African politics. Of course, got, got some students in there who were born here and who, but whose parents are from there and who they go back and forth. Or some couple of them were born there and come here. We're talking about Ghana. It's been a lot of conversation about the year of return, President Addo, and, you know, but the people in Ghana are suffering in terms of the economy of Ghana. And while I love listening to another uh, Addo talk, I also know enough history to understand that his family, when you start talking about Kwame and Krumen, there's some internal politics that make him very off-putting. In fact, to a lot of people in Ghana, regular folk, the CD, the, the currency has exploded in terms of, it, it's cratered in terms of its value. All these things. And so when he's saying, come back, we want y'all to come back to the diaspora. Y'all have a home. I love that it's somebody from the diaspora. And then I turn on TV and that's all the entertainers and all the politicians and all the celebrities going. And it's like, it, it doesn't 
displacement. We talked about Charlie Cobb writing in Black World about this international kind of bourgeoisie who can travel. Most of us can't travel. What about the people in Ghana? Well, I'm going to help them. Nah, them people is already souring on you, bro. I ain't mad at you, but please understand when Randall Robinson is talking about this Blackness, he has the option to leave. And we have to look beyond just the dem demographic of our faces, even the, the lyricism in our speech in our music, in our dress, in our dance, the sensibility of our ways of knowing and understand that what ties us together isn't just the cultural element, isn't just cultural meaning making to use it, to evoke another of our categories in uh, the African studies framework. Isn't just our ways of knowing, which are complicated, sometimes contradictory. It's also movement and memory. Here's what we talk about, Prof, when you talk about the narratives. How do we create narratives that reinforce this idea that we are connected? that we are connected. He said that, like I said, a, a, a mindless fealty to any flag numbs that part of the human heart set aside by nature at the beginning of life for self-esteem. So I don't care what flag it is, US flag, Ghanaian flag, British flag, Australian flag, Brazilian flag, uh, Congo flag, South African flag. Those flags should be proxies for structures which allow us to be human in the world in ways that don't damage the earth and don't damage each other. But those flags are markers for relationships that form at the at smaller levels of human social organization. Finally, Randall Robinson writes, I tried to love America, its places, its well-ordered marrow, its surplus opportunists, surplus opportunists haven't left the beach. Feet in the water, coming back. But I could not love a place. How can that love things? No one in good health can. Imagine a world of material wealth devoid of people. What's the love? Nothing. Martin King, where do we go from here? Took a month, we were all together reading it. what did he say? Three evils. Militarism, he says, the United States. is perpetrated all over the world. He said, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is the country I was born in, the United States of America. Who helped him write that? Uh, speech why I opposed the war in Vietnam delivered one month to the day that uh, one year before the day to the day before he was assassinated our friend and brother now ancestor the great Vincent Harding who wrote incessantly about the 60s and 70s as he continued to live up into 2014 we'll talk about Vincent Harding again in a minute in the context of Martin Luther King King says these three violences the violence of militarism, the violence. And he said, I'm nonviolent, which means I got to oppose militarism. I'm for peace. He came out for peace. They tried to erase him. Movement and memory in, in the social structure we live in means every Martin Luther King birthday, you cut off the last five years of his life. You leave him standing there on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial saying, I have a dream. Yeah. Well, what about why I oppose the war in Vietnam? No, hell no. We're cutting that off because these school children, including the ones that I teach in person, now we're in community by the thousands. So the little fraction of that that I get to see whose parents are in here with us, jailbreaking the black university, baby. They don't get that. They ain't get that in school. You know the, the greatest Jedi mind trick of the Martin Luther King holiday for those of you who don't live in the United States. On Martin Luther King birthday, they have people organized into cadres of servants who go out and perform public service for things they already paid for with their tax money painting schools, picking up trash, when as Martin King would likely be in the street talking about, where's my tax money? We paid for painted schools and picking up trash and it didn't happen. Now they flipped because movement and memory is truncated to making sure 
that whatever your blackness is, is absorbed into a whiteness that maintains its hierarchy. And you turn Martin Luther King into this docile character instead of, as Vincent Harding wrote in his very important book that I encourage everybody to do, and I've encouraged people to read it before, Martin Luther King Jr., The Inconvenient Hero. Dr. Harding, there he is. Vincent Harding say, my friend Martin King, after they killed him, they tried to turn him into a house cat. He said, dead men make such convenient heroes. <laughs> because he can't speak back. He said, our job is to tell something different. So anyway, Randall Robinson goes on to say, I couldn't love things. How could I love things over people? Imagine a world of material wealth devoid of people. What's the love? Nothing. Dr. King, and where do we go from here, says the, 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 the first violence is the violence of militarism. He said the second violence is the violence of extreme materialism. That's his critique of capitalism. You're a capitalist, Andy. I don't want to hear from you. You're a capitalist. I'm not. Uh-oh. That means we can't use money? We can't collect our money? No, that ain't what I'm saying. What I'm saying is your way of knowing thinks somehow that this system can be tampered, tinkered with around the edges and it can be fixed. My way of knowing is we live in this system, so we got to pool our resources, do what we got to do. But if you're aspiring to that, then you realize ultimately that's going to be a dead end. I'm still on Bruce's Beach. Coming to Bruce's Beach in a second. Militarism, extreme materialism and racism. Those were the three. Vincent Harding said had King lived, he would have degendered his language, he believes. So you would have added all the other isms in there as well. But those are the three he articulated and wrote and spoke about before an assassin's bullet took his life. Militarism. We certainly see that with the budgets. United States about to hit the debt ceiling sometime this week. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury here in the United States of America, says it's going to be around Thursday. She's already repurposing Treasury resources so that they can extend until the white nationalists in charge of the United States House of Representatives, where the budget uh, uh, policy and law must originate. Uh, probably going to engage in a, in a game of brinksmanship and destroy the economy. Who knows what's going to happen? But she's pulling. She says we might be able to get to the summer, maybe the June or July. But where is she pulling from? The folk who work for a living. The people, if you live in the United States, going to deliver your mail today. The pension funds. Yeah. The people who are the federal workers, they're going to because they're going to pay into the pension fund. But right now they need that money they pay on a regular basis because they're going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul till they can get past this. Now, 31 billion, I think 31 trillion dollars is the deficit right now. And, and, and the white nationalists are like, see, we got to do something about that. They rolled that debt ceiling three times during the um, the uh, the presidency of their avatar, Donald John Trump who added 40% to the national debt. This ain't about the national debt. This is about white nationalism, settler colonialism, and power. And the people who will suffer in the short term gonna be the people who look like you and me and the poor people who should be with Dr. Barber and Dr. Theo, Reverend Theo Harris at the Poor People's Campaign would have been with Martin Luther King and did in fact come in 68. But King's life was cut short, not because of the racism and I wanna ride on the bus wherever I want. Because remember, rich people, not rich people, Better off black people in Montgomery had cars. That's why the bus Montgomery bus boycott could be successful. You had some black people who went to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church who had cars who could drive black other black people who were walking to work or because they couldn't take the bus to back and forth to work. Class is important in, in the governance structure going on. Finally, as I said, Mayor Robinson says, I try to love America. It's people, the dominant majority, their depiction of me their treatment of me. I have tried to love America, but America would not love the ancient full African whole of me. That's not possible, Brother Randall, because to uh, love the ancient full African whole of you, the United States of America would have to go out, go out of business. 
Benjamin Franklin, you punk racist. You dead racist. James Madison, you punk racist, enslaving Africans. Thomas Jefferson, you punk racist. It's no, they would have to literally go out of business because what you did to indigenous people and continue to do, what you did to us and continue to do, what you do to poor your own people that you continue to do, that is the premise upon which this country was built. But you couch it in words like free enterprise and democracy. But in fact, it is violence. So when Rand Robinson said, I tried to love America, he not continuing. He quit it and he, he left. I'm gone. But but because he came to his senses. My question, fundamental question is, why would you expect this thing to be anything else? There's no justice. Justice would be George Floyd would be alive. Justice would be Breonna Taylor would be alive. Justice would be Breonna Taylor and George Floyd wouldn't be known as Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but whoever their ancestors were before we got pulled here. Okay. He says, I try to love America, its credos, its ideals, its promises, its process, but these things could mean no more to me than they had to those who had conceived them, written them, recited them, and ultimately betrayed them. In other words, how gonna mean more to me than mean to you? America never was America to me, but this I vow, America will be. That was Langston Hughes. Now, I was just looking at, uh, here we go, Vincent Harding, it's one of the last books he did before he made transition. This is a book he was in conversation with, um, a lay Buddhist um, named Dasaku Ikeda. It's called America Will Be, Conversations on Hope, Freedom, and Democracy. Vincent Harding, Dasaku Ikeda, dedicated to Martin Luther King. What is the meaning of Dr. King's message for the peace builders of our time? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not capitalism. It's not painting the walls that you already paid your tax dollars to pay and call that a day of service on Monday. No, it's called getting in the street and organizing and saying we and remember when we read where do we go from here chaos of community he had prop he had proposals at the end of that book everybody who lives in the united states of america ultimately the world but beginning in the united states of america since that's where he was should have a floor put under them an economic floor is a universal basic income is it a basic guarantee of income yes health care yes education yes should it be low price education no free education no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say free education. Education, I pay for my tax dollars and I wanted to go to education and not bombs. So what Randall Robinson is saying, if that never meant more to you than it does to me, how in the hell am I supposed to keep believing in something that never existed? This is what we talked about last week when we were talking about Kermit Roosevelt, professor at Penn Law School that talks about this idea that there's a, a founding father's you know, my dad, George Washington, founding fathers, social structure constitution, and then there's a reconstruction constitution. 13, 14, 15 amendments were never supposed to be in the constitution. You know who forced them? We did. Still on the beach with my toes in the water. Getting ready to stand up, though. Last paragraph, he says, then I stopped trying to love America. I have not despaired the moment, for with it has come a measure of unexpected contentment. Remember Martin King? speech he gave on a, on a Canadian broadcasting company, four of them, in fact. Uh, uh, you can read them for yourselves. You can look at analysis like um, my man wrote Black as a Country. Nikhil Pal Singh, S-I-N-G-H, writes about them. In fact, he starts, he says, in these in these speeches that Martin King gave in the last uh, year of his life that were broadcast on the Canadian broadcasting company, a uh, radio network, he said, you know, there's a reason why Canada was seen as the North Star for Africans trying to escape during enslavement. He says, you know, our fidelity must be to our common humanity. United States, yeah, that's cool. I was born here, whatever. But I don't put the United States before our common humanity. 
We can leave this place if we want. In other words, but but on Monday and this weekend, they're gonna show you all these documentaries about Martin Luther King. They're gonna try to stick him on a bus in Birmingham in Montgomery. They're gonna have him on a march to Selma. They're gonna have him at the at the march on Washington, and then they're gonna stop. Now they may sprinkle in something about the FBI was listening to him, and they sent a tape to Coretta saying he was sleeping with somebody. But but it turned into a, a an episode of Law and Order. Who killed Martin Luther King? You killed Martin Luther King. Can we get to the next question? Finally, Randall Robinson said, it settled upon me like an ancient ancestor's ceremonial robe, warm and splendid and old as time, mislaid, but valued all the more for its belated arrival. I'm gone, baby. Gone, baby, gone. I still got a passport. I come back and forth, but I ain't going to die here. Now, what does that have to do with the beach? Probably I had some questions I wanted to ask about this beach in the context of the ones that were raised in, in that newspaper article and then were discussed that, that you raised as well and extended and re-explored. Of course, well, let me start with the broader question on the impermanence of memory. I was reading, rereading a piece that was done a few years ago on something called the Wall of Respect. Some of y'all may have heard of the Wall of Respect. I was hoping maybe I'd have it. Uh, oh, here we go. Yeah. The Crawford family out of Chicago. Some of y'all know that family. Very important family. Bob Crawford, the photographer. Though, if you know Chicago history, Chicago, Illinois, here in the United States, then you know about something that was done in the 1960s called the Wall of Respect. It was a, um, a couple of buildings in Chicago where they put black women and men who are big heroes. You see Marcus Garvey there. You see... Um, Elijah Muhammad, you see Malcolm X, a lot of different people in this. Robert Singstack, Bobby Singstack took this picture, uh, The Wall of Respect. This is uh, actually Romy Carford's book, Fleeting Monuments of the, for the Wall of Respect. Now, look, you see where they taken out Robert E. Lee. He gone now, right? In Richmond, Randall Robinson's birthplace. Why do I bring this up? Because this whole book is about the nature of monuments. What happens when a place ceases to exist? Living color, letter to a landlord. You can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. These buildings are all run down now, but they have a value none can see. The wall of respect is gone. Bruce's Beach is gone. But is the physical existence of a thing essential for the memory? The answer is no. The impermanence of memory is something that we should take very seriously. Because this is one of the ways we construct a we. Remember last week we were talking about that? How you create a we with the ancestors? Everybody living now and the yet unborn, because that we is expansive. In discussing the wall of respect, it evokes a certain sensibility. And now we, you know, let me get my uh, feet out the water. Now I'm going to stand up in this sand. Black beaches. Black beaches like Bruce's Beach. Let's talk about the social structure that created the black beaches. You Negroes not going to be on the beach with us. Dorothy Dandridge, you Lena Horn, you stick your toe in the pool at the hotel. We're going to drain the pool. Why? Because if I get in, your blackness going to get on me, which I secretly desire at night, but I don't want nobody to know. The whole point is that water means intimacy. 
Does water be all up in your eye? Every orifice you have is all over your skin. If you see a, somebody, another human being, you say is inferior to you, and you get in the same water they get in, even if it's the damn Lake Michigan, Red Summer, as you said, Professor Hunter, 1919. Even if it's any swim pool, we got segregated swim pool. Even if it's the damn Pacific Ocean, Bruce's Beach, it's a problem. So we don't want y'all here. So what happens? African people who are only in California because you brought their ancestors to this continent and you won't leave them alone where you took them to labor and then they come out and you betrayed every promise you ever made during Reconstruction. So they went all the way out of California. Now I got a little room to operate. Women, Rev Letty, my job made Martin King a holiday and then suggested to do a service project. Right, my service is healing myself. No question, service project. You served me a you served me a raise, a pay raise. Dr. King said everybody should have a living wage. If you want to celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday and your job gave you the day I'm told you to do some service, you tell them the service you need to do is raise the wage. That's what you do, by the way. And my and, and let me just pause here for about uh, 60 seconds and, and, and mention that, you know, it is a incumbent upon us who were those of us who remember or who have studied, if you don't remember, to communicate to our young ones the meaning of the King holiday. Remember, I've said that many times. I uh, pulled in um, my man, Gil Scott Heron, the last holiday. The, the last holiday. Where he talks about being on that Hotter Than July tour in 1980 with Stevie Wonder, who wrote Happy Birthday on that Hotter Than the Hot of July album. They went on the tour because Bob Marley was too sick to go, and he suggested that Gil Scott Heron replace him, and Gil tells the story, right? Because that you remember, that's that's the album, uh, the um, album where Stevie Wonder had, you know, we be jamming until spring. Oh, I, mm -hmm, everyone's feeling pretty. It's hotter than July. That was a song he wrote for the Master Blaster, his friend, Robert Nesta Marley. Bob Marley, his friend. We transcend these funky ass boundaries these colonists put together. These are brothers. And Marley was going with Stevie, who had said, I'm taking up the cause of Martin Luther King's birthday becoming a national holiday. Why? Y'all been fighting for this since 1968. Wait a minute, Daddy King's born January 68. He was assassinated in, in, in April 1968. So how y'all been fighting to make his holiday, make his birthday a national holiday since 1968? He was alive on his last birthday in January. Well, there was a congressman named John Conyers out of Detroit, Michigan. Rashida Tlaib has his seat now, has the seat he had. John Conyers introduced a bill every year to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday from the year he was assassinated. And how many people in this room right now and everybody watching later, how many of you Negroes don't go to work or school on your birthday? I asked my students at this and they were all laughing. All these hands went up. I was like, no, it's my birthday. I ain't going to work. So guess what black people did in the governance formations in the immediate wake of Martin Luther King's assassination after we burn up about 100 and some cities in this country? We said, and I'm not going to work on his birthday. So the following January 1969, Nick Rose just, I ain't going to work. So I asked my students, I said, when was Martin Luther King's birthday declared a national holiday in black people's minds? Uh, I don't know. I said, the January after he was assassinated. <laughs> when, see, Randall Robinson says, two, I'm in this circle, surrounded by this other circle. Ding, social structure, governance structure. Thanks, Randall. This is contrib We got to think differently, you see. So anyway, John Conyers did that every year. He's also the guy who, who put in H.R. 40 every year, pushed by the activists in, in Detroit. Reparations. Reparations Ray. 
all these folks who did that joanna watson who's still joanne watson who's still in uh in, in detroit fighting hard national coalition of blacks for reparations in america ray jenkins reparations ray jenkins chokwe lumumba as i said before abu bakri um obadeli baba uh, obadeli anyway so our young people didn't know 20 years after the 20th anniversary of the so-called march on washington August 1983, a huge rally here in Washington, D.C. Not the only one. There have been ones before that. Stevie Wonder gives the closing speech, all this thing. Want y'all to lobby Congress, get this bill passed. Koreska King is there. Martin III is there. Dexter is there. You know, uh, um, Yolanda is there. Bernice is there. The King family. Every John Kanye is holding the microphone. He sings, happy birthday to ya. And I'm asking my students, how many of y'all know that song? Everybody hand go up, because that's how black people sing happy birthday in the United States of America. But did you know the background? Some of them didn't, but even those who did know it was about Martin Luther King couldn't tell you the history and how Martin and how Stevie Wonder made this ubiquitous song. I mean, you you could put "Happy Birthday" right up there with "I'm gonna make sure I'm right before I let go." These are national anthems, not red, white, and blue national anthems. Randall Robinson said governance anthems for African people, governance, cultural meaning making. But in terms of movement and memory, what has been buried that we must recover is the why behind that Marion Barry mayor of Washington DC we shut everything down in Washington DC black people you in this video that you can go on C-SPAN and look at the rally and I showed them a little clip of that they're like wow Stevie Wonder yeah no question the gladiator invader of Grenada who invaded Grenada in 1983 was forced to sign that bill he was president of the United States whose name will not be spoken on this Martin Luther King weekend but in 1983 he signed that bill into law with Scott King standing over his shoulder looking at it. Wasn't implemented until 1986. And in that same year, in my hip-hop class, I played these students something they hadn't seen before. None of them. Remember Dexter, who was working at the King Center at the time, who also said, you know, I'm a producer, I'm doing hip-hop, this kind of thing. He produced the album, co-produced the album with Curtis Blow and a bunch of others called King Holiday, the Dream Chorus. How many of y'all remember King Holiday, the Dream Chorus? Yes, 47th Street, that's exactly right. The wall of respect was there, right? It's now it's houses, row houses. And y'all remember the dream course? Prof, uh, Professor Hunter, I don't know if you remember the, the dream course. Uh, King, King holiday, happy holiday. <laughs> it, was a, it was a chorus, uh, uh, it was an all-star cast. Almost everybody was under 30. The two who weren't, most prominently, Stephanie Mills and JT from Cooling the Game. Fat Boys. Run DMC, Curtis Blow, Mella Mel, Stacey Lattisaw. Kids didn't even know who Stacey Lattisaw was. <laughs> but they recognized Tina Marie. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, it's amazing what has made it through. Because none of them were around. It's, it's their parents' generation, right? New addition, everybody but Bobby Brown. And then, although she could not be in the room with the studio session, they recorded her separately and dropped her in, taking this thing all the way up. And that, of course, was Whitney Houston. They produced this for the first holiday. There's an album of I got a couple of them in storage. The Dexter King, the King Center, raised money for the King Center. Prince couldn't be there, couldn't make it, but he paid for the studio time. Dexter King writes about it in his book, Growing Up King. I'm saying, so these are movement and memories. And then they're talking about what he represented. The fat boys, Dr. King tried to love somebody. Then you hear, uh, uh, was it new edition? Do you want to love somebody? Everybody sing for Martin Luther King. And then you hear the fat boy, oh, oh, oh. And then it was like, like, what the hell? And the kids are like, wow. I said, yeah. So, y'all out there uh, picking up trash on Monday, 
I want y'all to remember that's not what this was ever about. And they started the King Center. Anyway, back to the point. The question then of the social structure dictating how we think about these things shapes the way we think about problem solving. So on those black beaches in Maryland, in Jersey, on those black beaches in California, in Texas, on those black beaches in Alabama, in South and North Carolina, on those black beaches in Virginia, the segregated beaches, on the black beaches on the shores of Lake Michigan and Chicago. The social structure said, you Negroes go over there. And in the governance formation, we went and built something like Bruce's Beach. But here's the thing, why in our governance formations were we at the beach? Well, one is leisure. One is leisure. We have deeper human desires. I done busted my behind out here delivering food to these bungalows, driving these white people around, the Chandler family and all these people who own the LA Times the way the article appeared and all this kind of thing. You know, Walter Mosley captures some of that in his Easy Rollins series right after World War II, right? Now, of course, Bruce's Beach goes back before that. In fact, Bruce's Beach been taken out of commission by the time those cats come out there. Mouse, you know, Don Cheadle played him in the movies, you know, devil in a, in a, in a blue dress, this kind of thing. But by the time that happens. The beach been taken out of commission. Why? Because these white people in the social structure like, oh, you Negroes don't need to go to the beach after a long week of work. You don't need your children to run around in, in, in the surf while you sitting on the, on, the, on the sand. And you Negroes who put two pennies together to get it, you don't need the profit. So we're going to declare eminent domain and we're going to make this a public beach. No, you ain't going to, we're going to pay you eminent domain money, which ain't no money at all. And so they went to court and lost their fortune sooner. And they never built it. Well, they did build the public beach decades later. Then they made it a training ground for Baywatch types, you know, lifeguards. But leisure number one, I'm a human. It's like when black people go to church. I'm a human. And I'm going to be human in this space that we have, this black space, this circle within a circle. The second of three I want to mention is ownership. Now, here's the challenge where we get in. Here's the challenge of the settler logics. What does it mean to own land? You raise that, Prof. You raise that. Look at y'all coming in. Yes, once we build up, you see that. But here's the thing. Can you ever truly only own land in a system where you can be dispossessed of your land at any moment? The answer to that is no. Eminent domain. Everybody here who's a lawyer, anybody who's a law student or a law professor, you know anything about the law, you know about eminent domain. They take your stuff. Which leads me back to Zordon Hurston, who I said we wouldn't mention. And if I did bring her, let me see. If I didn't bring her around here, I'm going to have to go get her. Uh, doggone. Oh, there she go. There she go. It's her birthday last week. Zora Hurston tried to warn us. She wrote an article. She wrote a letter to the Orlando Sentinel, August 11, 1955. Remember when we read Barracoon and I pulled out the, this primary set of primary documents, Zora Hurston, Life and Letters, Carla Kaplan, Edited those. Uh, she taught for a number of years, University of South Carolina, uh, Southern California, USC. She writes to the Orlando Sentinel. She says on August the 11th, 1955, editor, I promised God and some other responsible characters, including a bench of bishops, that I was not going to part my lips concerning the U.S. Supreme Court decision on ending segregation in the public schools of the South. But since a lot of time has passed and no one seems to touch on what to me appears to be the most important point in the hassle, I break my silence just this once. Consider me as just thinking out loud. Zora writes, the whole matter it revolves around the self-respect of my people. How much
much satisfaction can I get from a court order for somebody to associate with me who does not wish me near them? The American Indian has never spoke, been spoken of as a minority and chiefly because there is no wine in the Indian. Certainly he fought and valiantly for his lands and rightfully so, but it is inconceivable of an Indian to seek forcible association with anyone. He is well known, his well-known pride and self-respect would save him from that. I take the Indian position. Then she goes on. Now he says, well, let me just read it. She says, now a great clamor will arise in certain quarters. This is a very controversial letter she wrote at the time. That I seek to deny the Negro children of the South their rights. And therefore, I am one of those, quote, handkerchief head, in words, end quote, who bow low before the white man and sell out my own people out of cowardice. However, an analytical glance will show you that is not the case. Zora writes, if there are not adequate Negro schools in Florida, and there is some residual, some inherent and unchangeable quality in white schools, impossible to duplicate anywhere else, then I am the first to insist that Negro children of Florida be allowed to share this boon. But if there are adequate Negro schools and prepared instructors and, and, and instructions, then there's nothing different except the presence of white people. And then she goes on to quote the Negro superintendent of Florida schools uh, and talk about how he's doing a fine job and how what we really need is resources. Not trying to get break down the walls to go with white people. And so I made me pull the history of the Florida State Teachers Association, um, this important book by Porter and Nalen. Nalen also wrote the history of FAMU, by the way, just to reread some of the things in there. And what you saw is that those black principals, those black teachers lost their jobs. Over 100,000, as we've talked about before. Zora Hurston is, is, saying, is telling y'all what's about to happen. And then, then now here's where she goes, though. She says, watch this. Since the days of never to be sufficiently deplored reconstruction, she and my wife were deploring it, there have been current the belief that there is no greater delight to Negroes than physical association with whites. The doctrine of the white man, I'm sorry, the white mare, M-A-R-E, you know, mare, female horse. Those familiar with the habits of mules are aware that any mule, if not restrained, will automatically follow a white mare. Dishonest mule traders made money out of this knowledge in the old days. Lead a white mare along country road and slyly open the gate and the mules in the lot would run out and follow this mare. This ruling being conceived and brought forth in a sly political medium with eyes on 56, meaning the presidential election of 1956. Good. And brought, oh good. And brought forth in the same spirit and for the same purpose, it is clear that they have taken the old notion to heart and acted upon it. It is a cunning opening of the barnyard gate with the white mare ambling past. We are expected to hasten pell-mell after it. And then she goes on to say, it ain't just the United States that's trying to get us to have this fascination with whiteness. She said they're claiming that this decision is a blow against communism in Russia. But then she says they're doing the same thing in Russia. They're saying, join us, which means almost an aspiration to whiteness. It's a very interesting letter she writes. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because you know, when I'm talking about ownership, remember the three things. So one is leisure. Two of three is ownership. And the question is, can you ever have ownership? What Zora Hurston says is here, she says, I think maybe this Brown versus Board of Education decision, since it's aimed at the South, and really can't nobody argue about racism in the South. If they do this, how long before, as she writes, she says, how long before he says, if it goes off fairly well, a precedent has been established. Government by fiat can replace the Constitution. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Wait, Zora, are you saying that you side with the segregationists? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if a strong federal government and a Supreme Court can do this, 
on a on a on a on an issue that we agree with. What happens when they do something else? And then when you say, I don't like that, you say, yeah, but what about the thing you did like? There aren't any rules. What she's really revealing in some ways is there are no rules in a society. Power is the only rule. They made that beach eminent domain because they could. Now, everybody hold on. What if they forced the sale of 20 million back because they could? We'll get there. Toes in the water, but I'm standing up now. Here we go. She says, personally, I am not delighted. I am not persuaded and elevated by the white mayor technique. Negro schools in the state of Florida are in very good shape and on the improve. We are fortunate in having Dr. D.E. Williams' head and driving force of Negro instruction, as I said. Uh, he goes on, says, it is well known that I have no sympathy nor respect for the tragedy of color school of thought among us, whose fountainhead is the pressure group concerned in this court ruling. I can see no tragedy in being too dark to be invited to a white school social affair. The Supreme Court would have pleased me more if they had concerned themselves about enforcing the compulsory education provisions for Negroes in the South as is done for white children. She concludes with them's my sentiments and I am sticking by them. Growth from within. Ethical and cultural desegregation. It is a contradiction in terms to scream race, pride, and equality while at the same time spurning Negro teachers and self-association. That old white mayor business can go racking on down the road for all I care. What is she saying? The first, <laughs> this white mayor business, right? Desire. We want leisure. We want to be with each other and relax. Well, can, I'm white. Can I come to the beach? Sure, you can come if you want. But y'all got a law that says y'all can't come. But I'm not thinking about you, white mayor. Go look at the rock where they got the plaque that says this was Jones Beach on it and read the language. This beach was open to everybody. It was They were very careful to neuter the blackness of the, uh, Jones Beach, uh, Bruce's Beach. When you look at that rock and that plaque, they're very careful to neuter the language to make these Negroes seem docile. They opened it for everybody. No, y'all was the racist in the social structure. We never said anybody could come, could come over here, but we got this for us if you want to come fine, but don't come showing your behind. Let's keep going. The second one, ownership. We came into a field of violence where we were literally considered property. We never saw ourselves as property. Even those of us who were so deeply, oh, I'm just a slave. You didn't want to be a slave. You wanted to escape. You got, you lost hope. It's difficult. But many people didn't lose hope. Many people engendered others who had lost hope with hope. And, and ultimately, you're not property. You're not property. In the legal structure, you are considered property. Once that structure changed because of the resistance that we fomented and then supported and then overran that system and forced it into those 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, they tried to reinforce a notion of a property relationship. Okay, you're legally not a slave, but we're going to create segregation in a way to give you, quote unquote, second class citizenship, which ain't no class citizenship at all. Our response, please let us in. No, our response, get that part of the beach. I got 1200, put on it. I'm going to build a resort. What y'all doing? We building. Oh, hell no. Eminent domain. You niggas is property. And we're going to move you up off this beach. It's a settler logic, the third of the three. One being leisure, two being property ownership, which is always tenuous in a settler colony where you can have the power to dispossess people of their possessions. The third of the three, community, the we. That's what we miss. Hey, Bruce Beach gone. Because we confuse demographics 
with a way of knowing we have communicated with. The Bruce family did what's best for the Bruce family. Why would you assume the Bruce family is part of this larger concept that Martin Luther King is talking about or that uh, 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 Randall Robinson is writing about? Oh, because there was once a generation of them that did that in a social structure that forced them to do it? Yeah, okay, fine. In your movement of memory, you narrate that moment. But don't impute those ancestors on this generation because what you're expecting of them, there is no material reason for you to expect that for them. They're in the settler logic too. And they made the best decision. And as I watch them transfer that deed, I'm looking at the people who got the deed and I'm thinking to myself, Thornell Hurston, let me go get that letter on the white mayor. I'm going to say less right now. But the whole point is we kind of wind this up in this moment. Because see, Luria lawyer, My assumption was before, and then, and then you know what I did then. I went back and looked at who was the law firm that worked this out, who was the nonprofit. I went and looked the sister up. Who was her organization? This is a new generation. I'm looking at all the things they're doing to try to engender this notion of reparations. And I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking to myself, these are high-powered lawyers. And it was a brother who kind of helped lead the team to negotiate it. I'm thinking I'd be willing to bet the hundreds of dollars. No, I'd be willing to bet that before anybody from the Bruce family signed that agreed transfer. In fact, I know this because I went and read. They could have leased it back to the county for X number of dollars per year, per month. Or they could just do the $20 million sale. Everything we saw had been negotiated before they ever sat down and set to sign because the thing is zoned for public use. Now, people say, well, they should have hold on to it and pushed to be lobbied, to be rezoned. Okay, maybe Karen Baston would have gone along with it, but then you got to ask yourself, what's the relationship between the governor, the state legislature, the county of LA, and the city of LA, and how does all that work? Which developers is paid which people, and how much more difficult would that have been? I'm not making excuses for the Bruces. I'm saying all these things were talked about before anybody sat down to sign a piece of paper. That was a fait accompli. What we're talking about now happened years and months ago. Now, these young people who went out there and who staged the protest came together, that community element, we want to recover this. Okay. Randa Robinson, who's a lawyer. Randa Robinson, who worked for Charles Diggs, who started the Congressional Black Caucus, and out of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, when he left uh, government service, started Trans-Africa. Randall Robinson could have told y'all what was going to happen. In fact, I'm sure there were a lot of conversations about what's about to happen. And so in these rooms, how many people in here want to bet that the Bruce family representatives were brought in and said, look, y'all can hold on to this for the race, or y'all can get this money and build generational wealth. For who? For the Bruce's? For black people? No, for these black people called the Bruce, well, some black people called the Bruce's. Right. Because ultimately, how many conversations have you had, have I had, have all of us had, or many of us had about what happens in families with we moved away from South Carolina or Georgia? We don't want the property. We should keep the property in the family. No, nah, I ain't going to do that. Some people, we're going to keep this in the family if we don't do nothing with it. But all of these conversations organized around capitalism, around property ownership, without a, a logic that comes from a governance apparatus that has us holding on to things. So if we turn to a close, what I saw on Bruce Beach is a victory for movement and memory, not a contemporary victory. So let's say they had kept it. 
and they had got it rezoned and they had developers. And some of them same people who could afford going to Ghana on the year of return would then go out there and what we get a glossy profile in essence. How do we free us? What do we get a, 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 a mini documentary? Maybe they do the, 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 the best man, Bruce's Beach. How do it free us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I said, you know, I see how it free you and your friends, the jet setting friends. But see, the problem is Martin King died. They had to raise money. Why? The man barely had life insurance. Martin King said, I'm not in this to get rich. Now, Andrew Young got a little money stashed, lived a long life. Great public servant, but last I checked, he was mayor of Atlanta in 1996. He was the mayor of Atlanta in 1996 when they cleared out all the people who didn't have no place to stay for the Olympics. Go read Rolandus Rice's new book, Hosea Williams, A Lifetime of Deep Defiance and Protest. Because Hosea Williams was like, Andy, you punk. The hell's wrong with you, man? We ain't out here. We was marching for the poor. You talk about that poor stuff, and then you the mayor of Atlanta. You let these white boys clean us off this map like we weren't there because you wanted the Olympics. And then when the Olympics is over, you gave the damn stadium to Georgia State and the dorms, the Olympic Village. Morehouse got a couple of little buildings that they got. But you could have revitalized, huh? That's the history of Atlanta mayorality from Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. Shirley Franklin made a few quantum leaps, but then you revert back with this cat from uh, where from Howard. Uh, anyway, the point is, Class divisions within our community are something we had to sit down and have a conversation about. And if they had kept the land, I want to know how it free us. Now, you're going to keep the land and make it into a nonprofit and have black kids from L.A. and from all over the country come and learn how to be lifeguards. and learn. Okay, in that case, let's have a conversation. But there was no indication that that's what was going to happen. The best thing that beach could do for us at this point is exist in our memory, our reconstructed memory, not as a physical place, but as an idea of black self-determination. We don't have to look at trying to one-up a system that can't be one-upped for inspiration, because that's a dead end. That is a dead Now, what we're doing, we're crowdsourcing our liberation. People will tell you, well, black power, power is a myth. No, people play a subscription for a narrative, a nominal subscription relative to everything else. And we keep pouring content in there with our whole hearts, moving toward the escape velocity that will make this the only place that any of us need to go to sustain ourselves as we branch it out. That is what Martin Luther King was saying would be a survival technique until we renegotiate the terms of this country. If it can be renegotiated, because remember where we go from here, chaos of community, that's the question. If you don't renegotiate the political economy, and not just the United States of America, but the world, you're going to find yourself in a world where these systems will collapse and those with the capability, Randall Robinson writes about this actually in The Reckoning, when he talks about what we owe each other, he got a whole thing and he calls it Vernon Jordan disease. I think I read that, yeah, where these Negroes who can will move behind gated communities and the rest of y'all are like, yeah, black power, watch my show on BET, but don't you ever come within a mile of my house because I got private security around. It's going to look like South Africa. This is what's happening in South Africa. This is the critique of Cyril Ramaphosa and those who came out of apartheid. I, I should mention one other thing before we, we close on Martin Luther King's weekend as we think about this beach business. We have to ask ourselves, on a weekend like this, as it relates to this question. How do we become citizens of the world? 
I'm going to resist the urge to get up and go and get a copy of where do we go from here? Because I remember it. We talked about it for a month and then many of us reread it. So, th- and when we do it together, y'all know in fact, when we finish our course, cause you know, Monday we're doing the coming, we're entering part two framing question two: how do Africans preserve and affirm their ways of life, use their cultures and identities as means to resist enslavement. Daniel black professor Clark Atlanta, world-known author is going to be in conversation with Karen, with me, with Urias, And most importantly, with everybody who comes in, he want everybody to come in. He gave y'all an assignment. Those of you who were in, y'all go back and look at the recording. Urias gave the assignment that he gave Urias to give to everybody. To What did he want us to do? Bring the names of your ancestors. I kind of know. I think I know what Black about to do. It's about to be powerful on Monday night. But as I said, I'm going to close with this. When we think about uh, Dr. King, where do we go from here? He says, we must be members of the world community. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the world community. And as we sit here on the 14th of, of, of January, when we did this, and now, of course, we'll be watching it throughout the week. And by the way, everybody, again, hit that like if you're on YouTube. Subscribe. Subscribe to this channel. We're going to direct the algorithm, too. Why not? Jailbreak the ag- algorithm. Dr. King said, we got to be citizens of the world house. We have, we have a relationship with each other. In fact, I would encourage you all to get this little book which has, contains a lot of his speeches on a global vision of justice in a single garment of destiny. Martin Luther King Jr., Louis Baldwin, who was at Vanderbilt for many years, edited and introduced it. Shireen hunter Gall, who you talked to, I think, Prof, about her new book. Didn't you yeah, talk to her? I did. Yeah, that's right. I'm in the interview, right? She uh, she wrote the uh, foreword, single garment of destiny. This is, uh, this is many of his speeches on how black people fit with the world. South Africa, Ghana, all that. It's in this one single volume. But I, I raised that finally because Dr. King's vision of a global humanity that overflows these silly boundaries that Randall Robinson say he don't respect no more and shouldn't have never been respected in the first place. Look around the world. In Brazil, they had an arrested hundred, then the thousands of now people who tried to overthrow the government. They got a warrant for the arrest of the former defense minister. It's in today's Financial Times and all over the, all the news because they found a document in his house where they had the plan to overthrow the election and put Bonazaro back in. Bonazaro in Florida with <laughs> his friend. Scared as hell to go back because it's about two very prominent Brazilians who scared to go back. One is the former president of Brazil. The other one is uh, George Santos. Talk about that another day. <laughs> he was like, dude, stealing checks out the nursing home where his mama worked and uh, bouncing, he's stealing old folks' checks. We got a warrant out for him, but we can't find him. Oh, wait, there he is in the United States Congress. Bring your ass back here to Brazil. Because unlike the United States of America, whatever problems Brazil has, I'm going to tell you what one of them ain't. They don't have, even with all of Bonazaro's plants in the military, on the court, they don't have the weak-ass system the United States has. Donald Trump stole every document he could find. Joe Biden left two postage stamps and a directory that happened to have top, top secret on it, and then media making it out to be an equivalency. Oh, Dr. King said, you better look past this funky country and be a citizen of the world and understand you can borrow lessons from people doing things other places. And we should think about that too on Martin King's birthday. So I'm gonna get my toes out the beach now because the, the beach I celebrate, the Bruce's Beach, that beach been gone. Mm. If people do. <laughs> Oh, you found it. <laughs> I did. I did. And you to that point, you know, um, and again, I can't thank you enough. Um, yeah. And we all, you know, the gratitude that we owe one another, you know, is inspired by the ancestors, you know, that brought us together. This was not yeah. an accident. You know, you talk about um, Master Blaster and then 
uh, Twinkie sat down at the piano. Doom, do, doom, do, doom, do, doom, Come doom, on doom, now. Doom, doom, and you gave, uh, you know, she came up with, you brought the sunshine. She came through the Clark Sisters inspired by Stevie Wonder. Our job is to continue to remember and inspire and pick up that baton and then you run your leg and then somebody you reach out, give it to the next person because that collective memory that you talk about mm. only happens when we do what we're supposed to do with the time that we have. So I'm I'm just grateful. Um, Ooh, that was powerful. I mean, but you're right. You know, you <laughs> think about Bruce's Beach as I'm reading the, the coming, as long as we remember, we can never, we can never go away. That is one of your so many gifts. That one too, y'all hear? That's another t-shirt. As long as we remember, we can never go away. Forget about the great, 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 great. Go back to great, 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 great grandma who put her money on. She's here. We ain't got to work. Oh, that was, what did you say, bro? As long as we remember, we can never go away.